You are listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. All right, 2 Timothy 3, starting in verse 14, says, But as for you, so Paul's talking to Timothy, As for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures that are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And in this verse, this next verse, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, like other 3.16 verses that are really cool, this one is really cool. You might have heard this before. First, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is a passage talking about the holiness and the, the god breathed God's breath on Scripture and the Word of God. So let's pray this morning. That's kind of a bigger topic for today of how we interpret and view Scripture as we look into church history and talk about the Reformation. So let's, let's uh, welcome the Lord here. God, we go before you in prayer, and, and God, we know that you are already here. You are all present, and you're here this morning. You're inside of us. Lord, let us recognize that as we study scripture and study church history. Lord, we love you and we praise you. And Lord, would you um, put inside of us this this knowing and this understanding of your word. God, open our hearts and our minds to you. We want to worship you and praise you with our thoughts and every part of us. So we love you, Lord, and we thank you. And everybody screamed, amen. So this, uh, I want to tell you a story quickly, uh, kind of about this bumper sticker. Uh, maybe you are annoyed by this kind of bumper sticker as well. Bumper stickers are just too simplified. You might be annoyed because it's Comic Sans font. And does that annoy anybody else? Just like, oh, it's so annoying. And it has two exclamation points at the end. Does that annoy anybody else? You're just like, that's not proper English. Like when you're like texting someone, it's like, because like exclamation, question mark, exclamation, question mark, question, 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 exclamation, exclamation. Like, are you asking a question or are you making a statement? We have the English protocol in what these things are used for, so use them correctly. Anyways, so I, I'm not so much annoyed by the Comic Sans or the double exclamation, but just the oversimplified idea that if the Bible says it and you believe it, then that settles it. It's like, well... As far as bumper sticker logic goes, I see what you're saying, I see the point that you're making, but it's, it's not that simple. The Bible needs to be interpreted. Um, that's what, that's the, maybe the whole reason why Sunday school exists, that we are nerdy when it comes to the Bible, is because it needs interpretation, exegesis, hermeneutics, understanding, application for today. Um, it doesn't just, it's not as simple as the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. There was a book written a couple years ago in 2007, maybe some of you have heard of it, it's called The Year of Living Biblically by A.J. Jacobs. Anybody seen this, read this, heard of this? A couple people. Came out a long time ago. It's basically this guy who's not a Christian. He, I guess he grew up Jewish, but he says this about his Jewish uh, faith. He says, I'm Jewish, but in the same way that the Olive Garden is Italian. <laughs> kind of a slam on himself and Olive Garden at the same time. Um, so he's not that Jewish. He's agnostic, and after doing this experiment... Uh, to write this book, he kind of says that he's a reverent agnostic or a uh, kind of an agnostic that comes to other people with faith 
with uh, reverence. So he's a reverent agnostic is what he calls himself. Um, so basically, he takes um, a year, and he kind of journals about this year. He says, it's a year of living biblically, one man's humble quest to follow the Bible as literally as possible. So he starts off on day one uh, making the decision. He gets up and says, okay, what should I wear? And it says in the Bible, in the Old Testament, not to make clothes of two types of material. Did you know that? It's like a random little verse in the Old Testament. And so he has to throw out all his cotton polyester blends. And so if we went around looking at your tags on your shirts, I imagine some of them would be blends. And if you wanted to live uh, according to the Bible, literally as possible, you would have to wear something else. He makes decisions like, uh, kind of cool decisions, like he's not going to gossip, not going to covet, not going to hate. Um, he goes, at one point, halfway through the book, he goes to a snake handler's church, because Mark chapter 16 says that here's the signs that will follow a believer. They will touch snakes and they will not be harmed. And so if you're taking that passage very literally, um, and I would say maybe out of context, you would go to an Appalachian church handler, Appalachian snake handler church, where you would, you know, praise and worship with like a live rattlesnake. And if it bites you, don't worry because you won't be hurt. But a lot of people have died, so that kind of stinks. Um, he, he eats kosher, of course, because in the Old Testament it says, don't eat pigs, no bacon, too bad, no uh, shellfish, too bad, you can't eat that. So he tries to live as literally as possible. He finds someone, um, he says in his book somewhere, he, he meets someone <clears throat> um, that uh, is an adulterer. And what does the Bible say to do to adulterers? Well, to stone them to death. And so he throws a little handful of rocks at this guy. Um <laughs> But he tries as hard as he can, and it it is a humorous book, um, and it's one man's quest to follow the Bible as literally as possible. But it's not as easy as, I'll put up the, uh, going back to that bumper sticker, it's not as easy as the Bible says it. I believe it, that settles it. We need interpretation, and I'm going to argue today that as we continue through church history, we are at the period of the Reformation where this is being reexamined. How do we interpret Scripture? And there's one side that says, well, we need church authority, and there's another th- side, the side of the reformers, that says, well, maybe we don't need church authority. We can just let the Bible interpret the Bible. So we'll get to that in a little while. But officially, welcome to the Mill Sunday School. So glad that you're here. If you're new, there's little cards on your table. Uh, you can fill it out with as much as, or as little information as you want. Bring it out there. Uh, we have a gift bag for you. Brady Boyd, uh, our senior pastor, wrote a book. There's a CD of The Mill on a Friday night. That's kind of our main meeting for college and 20-somethings. So there's like a, a sermon by Daniel Grothy and a worship song by our Mill Band. And so we have a gift for you if you want as you leave. And finally, uh, as far as kind of a last call goes for announcing a mission trip, we as... Um, I guess the most Sunday school, because I'm going, Jordan's going, the Foley's are going to Haiti in June. And so I have uh, up here, here I'll put these, uh, this is some information about this mission trip. You can come get afterwards. I made a couple copies. But it's a mission trip. It's kind of a medical mission trip, but I, of course, uh, don't know anything about medical stuff. So there'll be things to do, like uh, where there's like a vacation Bible school for the kids and other things while their parents are being treated. And it's a, a mission trip because we're partnering with the Foley's. 
Uh, that's a, a couple that comes to Mill Sunday School, and they're doctors, and they've been going to Haiti for a very long time. This is a mission trip where we could actually do a lot of good in a, in a one-week period. I know some mission trips that I've been on are, are maybe more for me, but going on the trip, and it's a way to get away and serve a little bit and kind of vacation, but this trip is, is a trip where they could really use uh, us, and so uh, kind of a last call for that because uh, money is going to start to be due pretty soon here, but uh, if you're interested, there's papers up there talking about the trip, and it's not very much. I mean, as far as mission trips go, um, it's, it's not a very expensive trip. So anyways, uh, and as far as a fun thing goes, this week, uh, if you want to know more about this, email me. You find my email on one of the sheets, but we are going to do the Chick-fil-A opening in, uh, any Chick-fil-A fans? Anybody? So if you don't know about this, I'll try to explain it in 30 seconds and move right along because it's just for fun. But we're going to meet here at the church, um, go up to an opening of Chick-fil-A in Denver, camp in the parking lot for 24 hours. (laughs) It's really, it's just a fun thing to do. It's like camping with everybody. It's, I like, anybody else like camping? So if you like camping, anybody like free food? It's like a win-win because after you're done staying there for 24 hours, you get 52 coupons for 52 meals at Chick-fil-A. So if you're interested, email me uh, and we'll talk about it. It's just kind of a fun thing. So anyways, let's talk about why, what we're talking about today. Church history, this month of March, we're talking about the Reformation. And if you're reading along, I've heard just, uh, I think the, the lone survivors that are still reading this textbook. Raise your hand if you have owned this textbook. Anybody? Uh, I see that hand. I see that hand. Raise them proud. Good. Um, so we are, if you want an extra nerd assignment, uh, here's a nerd alert for you. Uh, oh, I just left the thing. Just, it just passed. Sorry. So chapters 25 and 26. Uh, chapter 25 is about Zwingli. Chapter 26 is about John Calvin, who we'll talk about next week. And so if that, that's where we're at in the book, if you're interested. But here we are, finally, reviewing what happened last week. We talked about Martin Luther. Do you remember when the guy came in, that was Aaron Higgins with the hats and stuff, and we hung 95 theses that Sasha Samuel wrote by hand. Do you remember that? So last week we looked at these 95 theses. Um, here's a picture of it <clears throat> going back in history to 1517, October 31st, when Martin Luther nailed these 95 bullet points attacking the Catholic Church specifically on the use of indulgences. And if you were here last week, or if you know a little bit about church history, you know that in the Middle Ages, the Catholic Church doesn't do this anymore, but they were taking advantage of people selling pieces of paper that said, basically, your sins are forgiven. Get out of purgatory free. And not free, though. You'd pay, like, however much. I don't know how much would you pay to get out of purgatory. Well, if you really believed it, you'd pay anything. It's like, oh, I'll give you a thousand. I'll give you my life savings. If this really meant that I'd be getting out of purgatory. And so the Catholic Church made a lot of money on people believing that they had the authority to get people out of purgatory. And Martin Luther says, not on my watch. No way. We need to stop doing this practice. And a couple of his theses, I think number 50 we looked at last week, was like, if the church only knew, excuse me, if 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 the Pope only knew that this was happening, he would put an end to it. Well, it turns out the Pope did know, and the Pope kind of started it. So Martin Luther was excommunicated, and this is kind of where we left off the story last week. People were excommunicated for much less in those days, and Martin Luther's attack of the authority of the church uh, led him to excommunication, which it seems as though he was somewhat surprised uh, that, the, that the Pope knew that indulgences were happening and that he got excommunicated. But as Martin Luther continues 
uh, after this excommunication, he gets more and more strong in his ways. And then there's something called the diet of worms. Do you know what this is? It's not this. And so it's not, oh, sick. It's not a bowl. It's not a diet like what you eat of worms. I had a professor when I was in seminary, I was getting my master's degree in church history, made this really long joke about how Martin Luther ate worms. And so I was, I left really confused. I left like, so did Martin Luther eat worms or not? And no, he didn't eat worms. The diet of worms, I wish they would call it what it really is. Um, And I guess another way to say it would be a meeting in the city of Worms, Germany. So worms is a city, a diet is a meeting. So no worms reaten. Can everybody leave here knowing that? Did Martin Luther eat worms or not? No, he didn't. He did not eat the worms. Worms is a city. Don't leave here confused. Worms is a city. There it is. And the little Google dot. And uh, a diet. Another way to say a diet is a meeting, a council. Here's a picture of it. And by the way, uh, you have a picture of it in your uh, the cover of your notes is this famous scene of this meeting in the city of Worms in 1521 where Martin Luther is brought before secular powers. And you're like, why was he brought before secular powers? This was a church thing. He offended the church. Well, in the 1500s and the, throughout the Middle Ages, there was no separation of church and state. Like, can you imagine getting kicked out of new life for like disagreeing with some of theology and then having to go down to the police department? Like, you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say, I can't. It's like, what? No. The, the church and state are totally separate. Well, not in Martin Luther's time. And so he stands before Charles, um, the, the, the Holy Roman Emperor. Those guys in the, um, the red and the white, those are the princes representing different areas of Germany. And there's Martin Luther in the middle wearing all black. He's the one with a really cool haircut that has like the halo of hair. It's called a it's called a tonsure if any of you want to get this and it represents it's a really ugly haircut and it's meant to be because it's like I don't care what others think of me I only care what God thinks of me so if you, if you want to do that and go get a tonsure please take a picture and Facebook it so we can all share uh, with you in that experience but anyways there's Martin Luther and he says some really famous things uh, one of the lines he says is the sweet quote so on the back of your notes this is Martin Luther before the diet. Of worms, and he says, unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and the councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot, I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. And then some, sometimes historians add in this line. Uh, we can't totally make sure, we can't for sure accredit it to Martin Luther, but he says, uh, in history, kind of folklore maybe, he says, uh, here I stand, I can do no other. Amen. Um, And so, anyways, there he is, standing before um, the secular powers of his day, trying to make a case for the Bible alone. We'll talk about this in a minute, but I thought um, for those of you that like movies, specifically old movies, there was the Martin Luther movie from 1953 uh, has this scene, and it's like really intense um, as, as far as like black and white. He's, he's just like the acting is he's a little over the top. Um, <laughs> but at one point he says, uh, I, I, uh, I'm attacking popery. 
And I wanted to explain that because you're like, potpourri? Like the, the, this, like the potpourri incense? No, uh, potpourri, like if you use that word, I had to look it up. It's like, is that a real use of the word potpourri? Yes, potpourri means things related to the pope. <laughs> and so it's, it's a real word. So when you hear it, don't laugh. Or you can, but just know that it's a real thing. So anyways, without further ado, here's Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms. Uh, obviously a remake from that, and obviously in English, not in German. But uh, here we go. Dr. Luther. Yesterday you admitted these writings were yours. Will you tell us now? Do you persist in what you have written here? Or are you prepared to retract these writings and the beliefs they contain? I ask pardon if I lack the manners that befit this court. I was not brought up in king's palaces, but in the seclusion of a cloister. I am asked to retract these writings, but they are of different kinds. In some I discuss faith and good works. If I were to retract these, I should be denying accepted Christian truths. In others, I attack popery and assail men who have afflicted the Christian world and ruined the bodies and souls of other men. If I were to retract those, I should be like a cloak that covers evil. Most serene emperor, illustrious princes, noble lords, I am only a man and not God. But I must defend myself as did Jesus Christ when he said, as I say now, If I have spoken evil, bear witness against me. Martin Luther, you have not yet answered the question. Give us a simple answer. Will you recant or will you not? You ask for a simple answer. Here it is. Unless you can convince me by scripture and not by popes or councils who have often contradicted each other, unless I am so convinced that I am wrong, I am bound to my beliefs by the texts of the Bible. My conscience is captive to the word of God. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Therefore, I cannot and I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. (laughs) Great acting. A little intense. So here's the discussion question for you uh, to kind of think about that. Um, so in what ways do you agree with Luther about the Bible? So he's saying the Bible alone, the Bible alone, uh, not church authority. So what, in what ways do you agree with that? Um, and maybe, maybe someone at your table is willing to play 
the other side, to say that the, the Catholic Church's side of that was like, no, you need church authority and the history of the church to correctly apply and interpret Scripture. And Luther's saying, no, Scripture alone. So there's two sides of this coin. Um, and so maybe at your table, um, in what ways do you agree? In what ways maybe should we consider church authority um, in, a, in our interpretation of the Bible? Discuss this amongst yourselves. If you're at a smaller table, jump into a bigger table. More the merrier, right? So ready, Gazette, discuss. All right, I have, uh, I'm probably cutting your discussion a little short, but for the purpose of talking amongst ourselves, uh, does anyone want to share on the mic? Thank you, Mr. Burton, right. for getting us started. It works. <laughs> well, I'd have to um, agree most with Martin Luther about the fact that he desired everyone to be able to understand and read Scripture. Yeah. And that he shouldn't be for a few elite to be able to read and interpret Scripture, but for yeah. everyone. Good. Yeah, if you know a little bit more history, we'll talk about this today. Martin Luther translated the Bible from the Greek and Hebrew into German so that the people, the average person, could have read it, uh, which is pretty cool. Mr. Higgins. So the average person is uneducated. <laughs> what? Furthermore, the, <laughs> limiting access to the Scripture ensures that heresy does not exist. So the supreme authority of the church is expected, nay, it is demanded, built upon the rock that is Peter, that Christ himself nominated and handed down through the generations to the Pope. So therefore, the Pope is the supreme authority, and therefore the church. So are you St. Patrick, or what was that? <laughs> I was, I was, uh, he was the Pope guy. Thank you. Thank you for playing the other side. A lot of us have Martin Luther as our hero, but he was rebelling Against the church, ultimately. So thank you for presenting the other side. And, and the cool, the cool uh, voice. Was... Go ahead. <laughs> so I think that um, the, there should be a balance. Yeah. Like, because if you just went directly off of what the church authority said, you wouldn't... You'd be like, okay, well, whatever they say you'd goes. You'd be a robot, yeah. And then if you did away with any kind of church, any kind of church authority, and just went directly off what you thought the Bible said, you could read a book like Song of Solomon and be like, okay, got to be literal, sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> said very well, thank you. I, I have thought the the like what we all have the same Bible, like as far as different denominations go. As far as the Catholics, the Eastern Orthodox, even the Mormons, we all have the same Bible, pretty much. And so why are there so many different interpretations of this same book? Like, why do the Baptists, uh, in their theology and in their practice, look very different oftentimes than Presbyterians? Presbyterians look different, and, and, and their theology is different than the Methodists. Methodists different than... Uh, the Anabaptists, the Anabaptists different than New Lifers. Why these differences? We all have seemingly the same books of the Bible. So I'm gonna, I have, I've thought about this a lot this week and even before this week of um, why is there different interpretations of 
passages of Scripture, and I have these. Different, I have four arrows going out from the Bible, and we'll talk about the four different, or at least the four ways that I thought were like. These are like at the center of having the same Bible. These are like ways of interpretation um, that lead to different. Uh, I guess, sects or religions or denominations within Christianity. And the first one would be uh, leaders and councils. Logical. It's like, well, how should we interpret these passages? What do these really mean? How, how, do this, how does this apply for today? Well, you could say, well, let's get together the smartest people we know, uh, people that have been trained in Uh, Greek and Hebrew, people that have uh, been Christians for a long time, let's get them together and have them decide. Like, let's have an expert opinion, so leaders, and make a council decide how to interpret the text of Scripture. And if that is at the center, uh, or maybe, maybe a better way to put it is, if that's your lens on how the Bible should be interpreted, it seems like a pretty logical lens, um, well, then you would probably lend, lean more towards a, a Roman Catholic understanding of Scripture, that Scripture needs to be interpreted through the authority of the church. And this is what Martin Luther goes right up against, because church councils and popes have made decisions. In the Middle Ages, they made a decision to sell indulgences, and Luther sees that as a horrible evil that he needs to correct to help his people in Wittenberg and writes the 95 Theses. And so he says, we need to go back to the text of Scripture, and we should not just follow, like the comment was, we should not just follow blindly what the church says, because the church has and the councils have erred and contradicted themselves. And within the Catholic Church, there's even the doctrine today, I think it came out in the, uh, you could look it up, the, the, the doctrine of papal infallibility. I think it was 1800s or 1700s. This idea that whatever the Pope says is like new canon law, that because the church has elected him to speak for the church, he is the ultimate authority within the church. Well, if he comes up with a new doctrine, well, then he is speaking on behalf of the church, and that doctrine is canon law. Um, and so ultimately, we as Protestants would disagree with that. It was like, well, why does one man the Pope, get to make the decisions for the church. Shouldn't we all have access to the Bible and our own interpretation? But in there, to, to defend that, it's like, well, they're just interpreting it through this lens that church leaders and councils should have authority over how to interpret. So let's go back to the story of Luther. Then we'll come back to this diagram that I made and talk about the different lines of or lenses of interpretation. So Luther's escape. And I put escape in quotations because he is allowed to leave the, the council, the meeting that happens in the city of Worms, but he's an outlaw. He's an outlaw via the church. He's an outlaw by the secular powers of the day. He's an outlaw. Anyone that finds him can kill him or bring him in. He is an outlaw. And so he goes into hiding, basically. He hides in the castle of Warburg. If you ever go to Germany, go to Warburg, this castle, you can go to this room and see where Martin Luther hung out for years of his life in hiding because the secular and the church powers were after him. He hid in this room. Um, While here, he translated, like I said, he translated the Bible from Greek and Hebrew into the common everyday language of the German people, which is a pretty huge accomplishment. I mean, if even like just how many people have read the entire Bible cover to cover? It's like maybe less than half. 
Imagine not just reading it, but reading it in another language and translating it into, wow, pretty smart dude. Luther wasn't just some rebel punk that wanted to upset the church. He was a scholar. He knew what he was doing. He knew the Bible. He translated it. Um, He gets more and more firm in what he believes. He says things like this, uh, the Pope should stand up like the stinking sinner he is. Yikes, that's that's some harsh talk. Um, He, uh, at this point, he struggles immensely. He talks in his own journals, kind of writes privately about his feelings. We have some letters, that, some correspondence between him and other people. And we can see a huge struggle with Martin Luther and depression. Uh, potentially, uh, we, he wouldn't have called it this in the, the Middle Ages, but now many people looking back say, Martin Luther may have been a manic depressant, gone through these uh, very high times in his life and then very, very low times in his life when everyone seemingly is against him. And he doesn't know which way is up, and he's re-questioning everything. I mean, here's a guy that became a Catholic priest, was a Catholic monk, serves the church, and then gets excommunicated by the church. I mean, imagine yourself in that situation and trying to figure out where you stand and what you believe. Out of his depression in 1527-28, somewhere around there, he wrote uh, the famous hymn that you've probably heard before. He wrote both the music for it and the lyrics to a mighty fortress. Do you know that one? A mighty fortress is our God. Right? Anyways. Um, translates the Bible, argues that there's only two sacraments, baptism and communion, and the rest of the sacraments that the Catholic Church has are just made up, like the sacrament of uh, uh, on your deathbed, the sacrament of marriage, the sacrament of, uh, what's the other ones? There's seven of them. Holy orders. There's the uh, he Martin Luther argues. There's just two: communion and baptism, and the rest are just church authority, Catholic stuff that have been made up by the church. And so, at the heart of Martin Luther's theology is this Latin phrase. Have you heard this before? What's it mean? Only Scripture, sola scriptura. This Latin phrase for it's only by Scripture. Does our faith come from? Our practices should only be informed and form us is Scripture, only by Scripture. So he asks questions like, where is the indulgences in the Bible? If you've read the whole Bible, you know that, well, they're not in there. This is something made up by the Catholic Church. Martin Luther questions, um, he was a monk and a priest, and monks and priests in the Catholic Church don't marry. And Martin Luther questions that. It's like, where is that in the Bible? Why can't I get married? And so he meets a young girl, Katharina Van Bora. That's a picture of her. She looks pretty cool or kind of mean, either one. Um, and they get married. She was a, uh, so under, under Martin Luther's reform in Germany, like these ideas start blowing up. And Katharina Van Bora was a Catholic nun. She leaves her monastery. She, you know, like breaks free. Uh, I don't know how that worked exactly. Um, she becomes a Lutheran uh, as part of this protest and as far as a part of this reform. She meets the man, Martin Luther himself, and they like each other, so they get married. And she's, if you... Um, are looking for, I often teach church history classes and have students do reports, uh, pick a person in church history and do a report on them. It seems like every time I teach this Protestant Re- Reformation, uh, somebody in the class picks Katharina Van Bora to do a project on a fascinating life 
um, and fascinating influence on Martin Luther um, and the church. So um, let's go back to this. This is where we left to talk about Martin Luther. Let's come back to this. Um, the Bible there is in the center, and there's different colors uh, protruding out with arrows, maybe different lenses uh, by which we can interpret the Bible. Let's talk about some of the other ones. Because you might say, well, if we form uh, a council and leaders of the church get together, well, then what's keeping them from, um, I don't know, maybe dishonesty? What's keeping them from failing to interpret the Bible correctly? Well, another form of interpretation could be to say, let's go back to the early church fathers, the people who lived in the 100s, the 200s, maybe even the 300s, the people that knew the people that literally knew Jesus. Maybe they have some insight on how the Bible should be interpreted. Um, he's like, well, that's, that's a decent idea. That's a decent thought. I mean, the Bible says a lot of things. Like Jesus says, gouge your eye out if you uh, commit lust. Uh, the Bible says that women must be silent in the churches. Uh, the Bible says women must have their hair covered in churches. And I'm looking around, there's lots of girls in here. Maybe just a few of you have your hair covered, so the rest of you are in sin. Just kidding. According, well, at least according to like a literal scripture interpretation, 1 Corinthians says women who comes to church must cover her head. Why don't we take that literally? Well, because, well, maybe we have... Um, the, the right to, to interpret it differently than it seemed in the early church. Um, maybe not. I don't know. I would, I would say not. But how do we interpret the Bible? We could go back to the church fathers. If you go back to the church fathers, the people that were interpreting and applying the Bible in the 100s and the 200s, well, then you would probably lead you to be an Eastern Orthodox. That's what they kind of tout as like, why they do things the way they do them. And we took a field trip. There was like 15 of us that went to the Eastern Orthodox Church a couple weeks ago, and we talked with Father Anthony, and we kind of heard his heart for like, well, how should we interpret Scripture? Ultimately, how did the early church fathers interpret it? So I, someone asked him, uh, what about homosexuality? Do, do you guys in the Eastern Orthodox Church, do you ordain homosexuals? And they said, no, no, we don't, because if we go back in history to the early church fathers, the Bible kind of talks against uh, homosexuality, and then the early church fathers, no one was ordaining homosexuals. So therefore, based upon the Bible and how the early church fathers interpreted it, we don't do it. And then for the same reason, though, they don't ordain women because the Bible talks against, uh, it says women be silent, and then the early church fathers, they didn't ordain women. And so in the same way, they're trying to keep to the original early church fathers, the original church as close as possible, and not making any changes for today, as harsh as that may seem. So, one more. It's actually two more. Uh, the purple is more of a prophetic interpretation. It's like, we have all these scriptures. How should we interpret them? Well, maybe you've heard someone say, well, uh, I feel like God is leading us to apply this scripture to us for today. That's more of a prophetic interpretation. Um, of scriptures. Like, so let's not go back to the, let's not form a council. Let's not go back to the early church fathers. Let's just pray and ask that God would give us interpretation for today. And if you do that, the, the logical conclusion is that a lot of scripture would probably be more allegorical to you. Um, like, for instance, I've heard this a lot when applied to Revelation. How should we apply Revelation? How should we interpret this very confusing book? Well, prophetically, you could say, well, maybe, for instance, uh, the seven churches talked about in Revelation, the 
Smyrna, Thyatira, Pergamum, Philadelphia, the other ones. Uh, those we can interpret prophetically to mean different ages of the church or different American cities right now. Like Smyrna is New York City and Laodicea is Vegas because it's not hot or cold or I don't know. You could prophetically like sit down and pray and ask God for a prophetic interpretation. So that would lead more to allegorical it would probably lead towards, uh, this is how the LDS, the Latter-day Saints, Mormons, would interpret the Bible. They would say the Bible has to be interpreted through their prophets, through the prophet Joseph Smith, and uh, through the prophet line. The Mormons would say that there's a prophet living now. He's the president of the church. Uh, Thomas Monson. Munson is his name. And through that prophetic line, they interpret Scripture. And all of these we would kind of disagree with. I mean, you could see like, oh, I could see prophecy being important. I could see the church fathers being important. I could see the leadership and the councils that have formed throughout history. Is that being important? But ultimately for us as new lifers and Protestants, we would ultimately go back to hermeneutics and exegesis. We would say something like, well, why don't we let the Bible interpret the Bible? And by that, we need to do our homework. We need to study Scripture. We need to look at the ancient languages. We need to see what the original author and audience was. And so we as Protestants, as New Lifers, uh, we would hold this one. So lots of uh, lines pointing to us as Christians living today as New Lifers. And we would say, well, we have the authority to go back and, and try to ask the question, well, what did the original author mean when he said this to these people? And then what does that mean for today? And so the, the biblical uh, study rules of hermeneutics and exegesis, we would ultimately say, well, councils can err. Church fathers, you know, maybe they didn't know any more than us today. Uh, maybe the prophetic interpretation, that can be wrong. So let's go back to Scripture alone. Sola Scriptura. Let's let the Bible interpret itself. We need to do exegesis and hermeneutics. Um, and and th- that's why we have spent months and days uh, sermon series on hermeneutics and exegesis and how to read and understand and apply the Bible. So that's ultimately where we as Protestants get our start with Martin Luther. I'm going to talk about one more guy. So kind of switching gears now, we'll end with uh, another hero for the Protestant church and kind of tie this back in in just a second. His name is Huldrych Zwingli. Most people just call him Zwingli. He's a Swiss guy. He's from Switzerland. He is a radical reformer. So he, see, he, he was born in 1484, just two months after Martin Luther. So Martin Luther and Zwingli would be contemporaries in the Middle Ages. And he is much more radical than Martin Luther. Uh, preaches against the Holy Roman Empire right from like day one. He becomes a priest actually and a monk and then uh, reforms, wants to reform the church, preaches against the Pope, preaches against councils. He does something totally crazy in the Middle Ages. I'm going to say it and you're going to say that's not that crazy. But in the Middle Ages, it was crazy. He preached through, so as a sermon series, he preached through a book of the Bible. Can you believe that? It's like, what? What's the big deal? We do that all the time. Well, if you attended church in the Middle Ages, you went to a Holy Roman uh, Catholic Mass, they don't preach through the Bible. They have a, uh, like a liturgy, and they have uh, a lectionary, 
and they go through the, the, the Bible and like different, they just don't preach through a book. That's not what they do. Zwingli did that in the Middle Ages, pretty radical for his time. To give you an idea of his courage, um, remember a couple weeks ago we talked about the Black Death, how horrible that disease, that bacterial infection was. Um, you'd get these bubbles all over your skin and you would die. You'd kind of turn bluish black because you couldn't breathe and then you would die. Well, the Black Plague comes to Zwingli's town and it was a custom, uh, as probably it should be, if the, the Black Death came to your town and people started getting sick, if you had the funds and the resources, you would get out of Dodge, um, get out of there. Zwingli, as the pastor, says, not on my watch. I'm going to stay. I'm going to shepherd my people. So he stays, and he gets the Black Death, and he survives the Black Death. He survives the bacterial infection, and he lives. And so that's a little piece of his story, how courageous he was to stay and shepherd his people. That's where he's from. They're in uh, Zurich in Switzerland. Um, Here's another picture of him. Uh, A man of the Renaissance, uh, studied Latin, studied Greek, uh, translated the Greek New Testament, uh, rebelled against the Catholic Church, wanted all teachings based upon the Bible alone. So all relics of the Catholic Church were removed. Zwingli said, you know, why, why all these different statues and pictures and relics? Where's that in the Bible? Well, it's not. So let's get them out of here. Where is uh, musical instruments in the Bible? Well, it's not in there. So we just get them out of here. Uh, I don't think he would be very fond of new life worship because we have instruments. And Zwingli's church was only singing and only singing the Psalms. Because it's like, if it's not in the Bible, let's get rid of it. Um, and let's see. I think, I think where I want to go now is to talk about this. Lint. Not dryer lint or belly button lint, but the season of Lent, the annual season of fasting and penance before Easter. Raise your hand if you gave up something for Lent. A couple people. Raise your hand if you know that we are in the season of Lent. <laughs> okay, at least <laughs> some of you know this. Um, the Catholic Church and church throughout history have celebrated Lent. Lent, these uh, 40, if you get technical about it in the Catholic Church, it's 46 days before Easter, uh, six weeks and every Sunday is a cheat day for your fasting. So it's 46 days, and every Sunday you can go crazy uh, and cheat in your fast. That's allowed. And it's this time of repentance. It's this time of fasting, looking forward to Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. Um, and you might ask the question, like Zwingli asked the question, where is the practice of Lent in the Bible? You flip through your Bible. Do you see 46 days of fasting with six cheat days before Easter in your Bible? No. I mean, you see fasting in the Bible. You see uh, Jesus fasted 40 days, um, but that's not 46 days with six cheat days, is it? No. Um, So where is Lent in the Bible? Well, Zwingli said it's not in there, so let's not do it. And in the Middle Ages, people didn't give up uh, Facebook for Lent. People in the Middle Ages didn't give up uh, chocolate or sugar or coffee or, uh, I don't know, what do you you give up for Lent? Cigarettes. (laughs) Whatever you give up for Lent. 
people didn't have a choice. Like usually most Protestants, if you give up something for Lent, it's probably something like uh, an excess, like sugar or caffeine or soda or whatever you're giving up for Lent. In the Middle Ages, the Catholic Church said that you were to give up all meat products. You're basically to go vegan as a fast in the Middle Ages. If you're a a Christian, you, by canon law in the Catholic Church, have to give up all meat, dairy, eggs. You go vegan for those 46 days, and then you get six cheat days. So that's why, um, if you don't know where the idea of Mardi Gras came from or Fat Tuesday, it's like, well, you're about to go on on a 46-day fast where you're not allowed to eat meat. So if you have any meat, you need to eat that uh, and party it up because it's about to start a 46-day fast uh, with six cheat days. Um, And imagine yourself in, like, is there anybody a vegan in here? Nobody? Oh, no, not even one. Well, you, sometimes Grace and uh, Madison come. They're vegans. And if you talk to a vegan, you're like, well, it's not that hard to be a vegan because we live in America and it's 2014 and there's like vegan butter, there's Boca burgers, there's vegan cheeses. You can get a vegan milk, like a soy milk. It's pretty easy to be a vegan. In the Middle Ages, if you're living, say, in Switzerland, could you get a hold of fresh bananas? Probably not. Could you get a hold of canned soups? No, there was no canning process. Could you get a hold of apples? Probably not, because Lent almost always falls right at the early, early spring, after winter. So the only foods that can last like five, six months throughout winter would be like grains and seeds. So there's no access to apples or fresh fruits or salads. Probably the only thing you had to eat would be the eggs that the chickens just laid, some salted meats that, you, that could survive, uh, like some jerky kinds of things or sausages, or freshly milked uh, milk from cows. That's what you had to eat. And, and the Catholic Church uh, in the Middle Ages says, you have to give up all this stuff and become a vegan for Lent. And so I imagine, I can't really think of anything other than just bread for those 46 days that you had to eat. 40 days of fasting, eating bread alone. That's a pretty hard fast. And if you don't think that's a hard fast, try it for a week or two, uh, not, to, not to mention six weeks of fasting. And I'm sure you'll agree with me that just a bread-only fast is a pretty hard fast, especially if you're in the Middle Ages. You're probably already hungry. Uh, there's no medical science like we have today. People got sick and people died. And by canon law, everyone had to do a vegan fast during Lent. And Zwingli says, where is this in the Bible? Where is this practice of Lent in the Bible? So Zwingli gets together and he throws a big barbecue, bacon, meat, just in rebellion to the Catholic Church, which kind of like, in some sort of conclusion here, it's like, should we rebel like that? Or should we kind of welcome things like Lent. I mean, here we are, the mill is going over a series in Lent and preparation for Easter. Is that a bad thing? No, that's a great thing. Is fasting a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing. It's in the Bible. Um, But the practice of doing Lent, it's not in the Bible. So what do we do with practices like that? Practices that are helpful but not in the Bible? What do we do with practices that seemingly hinder us, um, but they are in the Bible? 
So in conclusion, think about it like this. I'm, I'm kind of leaving you at a cliffhanger moment today um, because I want you to think about this. this. This is a very important decision of how you ultimately interpret the Bible. You know, we could all say, oh, the Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. But what does that really mean as far as everyday interpretation? Well, as this pendulum swings, maybe there's two sides of this thing. And maybe there's even more. But on one side is this idea of sola scriptura, you know, only by the Bible. And then, well, what about, you know, the other side, the church tradition? And in history, we could say that maybe Lent has helped a lot of people, this, this practice of fasting before Easter. It's like people getting on this rotation of this church calendar and people fasting. That's good things. Pre- preparing yourself to think about and experience and celebrate the resurrection sounds like a great thing. But it's not in the Bible. So which, you know, maybe we lean sometimes in history too much towards church authority. And we need uh, someone like Martin Luther to bring us back to the Bible. And then sometimes maybe we lean too much upon like our own uh, interpretation of Scripture. Well, like this is my interpretation and this is what I say. Well, what about what the church has been saying for 2,000 years? How, how do you have the authority to just be like, oh, it's just me and my Bible. I could interpret it on my own however I want to interpret it. Well, what about other people that have gone before us? We can learn from them. In fact, the whole reason why we're studying church history in the Mill Sunday School is because we believe we can learn something from our moms and dads, our, our grandparents, figuratively, in the church, the people that have gone before us. So ultimately, as we close, I want to pray because um, ultimately we are all seeking God's knowledge. And we can find that, of course, in Scripture and by Scripture alone. But I think we could also find God's working, God's will in the people that have gone before us. And so let's not throw the church tradition out. I think there's something we can learn from liturgy and Lent and things that are uh, of church tradition and not necessarily in the Bible. And, and kind of this question of like, well, how, how dare we, you know, living you know, in as individuals in 2014 say, um, it's just me and the Bible. All I need is just me and my own interpretation, however I want to see it. It's like, well, no, the church is important. So, Lord, we, we come before you this morning in prayer. And, God, we ultimately seek you and your knowledge And you're speaking to us and guiding us through life. Lord, thank you for the text of Scripture. Thank you for these books, the Old and New Testament, that we have to conform our lives to. And Lord, thank you for history that's been written down, recording other Christians who have gone and lived before us, some of them making mistakes that we can learn from, and some of them glorifying you, that we can um, follow in their footsteps and glorify you and be the church you've created us to be. So, Lord, we praise you and we worship you. Amen. Amen. All right, friends, go in peace. Peace out. We'll see you next week. We'll talk about John Calvin. Thank you for listening to the Mill Sunday School podcast. You can find more information at www.themillonline.org.